podcast dedicated to the pursuit of truth through wonder with me, Sophie Burkhardt. Well, hello. I am switching things up a bit here with Beneath the Willow Tree. Instead of having more of a scripted discussion on some sort of theme or book or topic, I'm going to be working through different books at a time. I'm going to go back and forth between nonfiction works and fiction works that all correlate with this theme of seeking truth through wonder. And so hopefully also I'm going to have another person with me as much as possible, sort of various people in conversation, because I think that's the most fun. I just, I love having conversations with people than just, you know, talking to myself. (laughs) But to sort of launch this new look, (laughs) new format off, I'm going to just walk through George MacDonald's essay today called The Fantastic Imagination. It is the shorter one of his two well-known essays on the imagination, and this one really specifically is focused on fairy tales, sort of describing what a fairy tale is in a typically George MacDonald way, and arguing for what good fairy tales are, and arguing for reading uh, fairy tales and writing fairy tales. And so it's just a fantastic essay, and because it's only a few pages, I thought I would basically end up just reading the whole thing and stopping every few paragraphs just to sort of talk through some key themes. So it's going to be really chill, and hopefully I don't ramble too much. But let's kick it off with the first three paragraphs here. This is what MacDonald says. That we have in English no word corresponding to the German Märchen drives us to use the word fairy tale, regardless of the fact that the tale may have nothing to do with any sort of fairy. The old use of the word fairy by Spencer at least, might, however, well be adduced, were justification or excuse necessary where need must. Were I asked, what is a fairy tale? I should reply, read and die. That is a fairy tale. Then read this and that as well, and you will see what is a fairy tale. Were I further beg to describe the fairy tale, or to find what it is, I would make answer that I should as soon think of describing the abstract human face, or stating what must go to constitute a human being. A fairy tale is just a fairy tale, as a face is just a face, and of all fairy tales I know, I think Undine the most beautiful. Many a man, however, who would not attempt to define a man, might venture to say something as to what a man ought to be. Even so much I will not in this place venture with regard to the fairy tale, for my long past work in that kind might but poorly instance or illustrate my now more matured judgment. I will but say some things helpful to the reading and right-minded fashion of such fairy tales as I would wish to write. Or care to read. So here MacDonald, he's sort of introducing this topic of fairy tales. He mentions that the name fairy tale doesn't always, doesn't work perfectly in the sense that the German word American covers a wide range of stories, whereas the English word of fairy tale covers also a wide, wide range of stories that don't necessarily include fairies within them. Fairies, you know, might include elves, pixies, so on and so forth. And and a good number of fairy tales just include humans, kings, queens, princes, princesses, peasants, so on and so forth. So he he just sort of sets it up as well, you know, this may not be the perfect term for, but it's, it's the term that we have. Then he begins to describe what a fairy tale is. And and I think what's so wonderful about his definition of a fairy tale, um, the definition to, you know what, just go read fairy tales, that's how you're going to understand what a fairy tale is, is that it's in such stark contrast with this attempt to overanalyze things. Basically, what MacDonald is saying here, right, is that there is, the nature of something is more than just the sum of all of its parts. That there's something about a whole. There is something unique about the entire 
fairy tale that you can't understand if you just try to say, well, a fairy tale includes, you know, this sort of character, this sort of plot, X, Y, and Z has to happen, and it needs to be set in this world, so on and so forth. You end up analyzing the fairy tale to death, and while you may understand all of the constituent pieces of a fairy tale, McDonald's saying you're not going to truly understand what a fairy tale is. To really have this deep knowledge of the nature of a fairy tale, you just have to read fairy tales. And he, he points you, he doesn't just say read fairy tales, he points you to the fairy tale that he thinks is the best, which is Undine, or I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced. To be honest, I didn't check how it's pronounced, it could be Undine. Um, it's U-N-D-I-N-E, and that is a German fairy tale that came out, it was published before, right before, I think a year before the Grimm's brothers published their collection of fairy tales. And you know, I've never actually read it before, but I would, I definitely need to read it and we all ought to read it. But at any rate, he's not just saying immerse yourselves in fairy tales. He's saying, immerse yourself in the best sort of fairy tales, which, which I think, so I just really appreciate this twofold nature of beginning to understand what something is. We understand it by experiencing it, and we really come to know it by experiencing the best versions of it. So what we have here is an understanding of the whole instead of a constant breaking apart of the whole to discover all of the pieces. Now, of course, there are useful times for using analysis. It is a useful way of thinking, but also synthesis is another useful way of thinking, of bringing together disparate pieces and uniting them into a complete whole to reach a greater understanding. And so what McDonald's saying here makes me think of that as well. And likewise, too, it kind of reflects how Aristotle discusses epistemology. So epistemology is really the philosophy of knowledge, the philosophy of how do we come to know things. And this is a very simple on the surface level discussion of Aristotle. He talks about we begin to know things. For example, we know that a chair is a chair because we have witnessed a number of different chairs. So we learn through the experience of interacting with different chairs, which is in contrast with Plato would argue that we know a chair he splits the world into the world of the physical world and the world of the forms. Now, Aristotle also has forms, but they're completely different in the two different philosophical systems. But Plato basically would say that our mortal souls exist when not tied to a body, exist in the world of the forms. So our mortal souls all know the forms of everything that exists. And when we're in our physical body, when we come to, air quotes, know a chair, it's us remembering what a chair is. But we can only know a chair because an eternal separate form of the chair exists in this alternate plane, basically. Um, which is, doesn't really have that much to do with what McDonald's saying here, but it's just interesting to me to kind of just tie any pieces together, reflect on them, sort of see how this kind of can also play into Aristotle's discussion of, of how we come to know things through experience. But really, I think what, what he's arguing at is that you know a good thing by experiencing that good thing. And that's how it's, you're going to be able to kind of tell the difference between what is a good fairy tale and a bad fairy tale, or even the simple of what's a fairy tale and what's a different kind of story, just because you've experienced a number of fairy tales. And so you've just sort of, you've come to reach a deeper understanding of it. I was reading, actually, reading this book after, I think it's called After You Believe by N.T. Wright, but he's basically arguing for uh, virtue ethics, like Christians need to live by virtue ethics. And virtue ethics is also Aristotelian. And so he's sort of making this difference between when we shape, when we form a character, 
and we live by virtues instead of living by just rules. And he's not saying throw out all the rules altogether, but there's a way where we can approach life and we just learn all of the rules. He kind of uses an example of, um, he talks about rugby players and newer rugby players are just being taught all of these different rules and what to do in this scenario, this scenario, and this scenario. But when they come to a totally new scenario that they've never learned, they all of a sudden don't know what to do. Whereas older rugby players, not characters, <laughs> older rugby players, they were so, they had such a love of the game and they just spent so much time just playing it and appreciating it and enjoying it that it became second nature and they're able to adapt quicker to new scenarios that are being thrown their way. So when you just sort of, when you approach something out of love and you just want to experience it over and over again, it's giving you this deeper character and knowledge and understanding than if you just try to parse it apart and understand the rules and the mechanics of how it works. So that's just kind of all the thoughts like going through my mind, at least when I'm reading this part of, of this essay. So just really interesting, really great, especially that secondary level of now I'm going to direct you. This is the best sort of fairy tale. So go and read this. Um, then he kind of says, look, I'm not even going to say what a fairy tale ought to accomplish, um, even though some people might say, well, this is what a man ought to be, even if we can't really fully define what it is that is a man. Um, so he kind of basically that last sentence there when he says, I will but say some things helpful to the reading in right minded fashion of such fairy tales as I would wish to write or care to read. That's almost sort of his thesis statement for, for this essay. And so that's what he's going to do throughout the rest of it. Also, side note, if you hear random screaming <laughs> in the background, I live in Athens. We are home of UGA. Football is very big here and there is a big football game going on right now. And my landlords who I share a wall with are listening to the game. And so they're getting excited here and there, which is just fun in, in the background. Um, it seems like it's a close game so far, so we'll see how it goes. But anyways, football aside, let's talk about the next few paragraphs here. This is going to be a bit longer of a chunk. So I'll sort of read it all and then kind of come back to it piece by piece. This is what McDonald says. Some thinkers would feel sorely hampered if at liberty to use no forms but such as existed in nature, or to invent nothing save in accordance with the laws of the world of the senses. But it must not therefore be imagined that they desire escape from the region of law. Nothing lawless can show the least reason why it should exist, or could at best have more than an appearance of life. The natural world has its laws, and no man must interfere with them in the way of presentment any more than in the way of use, but they themselves may suggest laws of other kinds, and man may, if he pleases, invent a little world of his own, with its own laws, for there is that in him which delights in calling up new forms, which is the nearest, perhaps, he can come to creation. <laughs> when such forms are new embodiments of old truths, we call them products of the imagination. When they are mere inventions, however lovely, I should call them the work of the fancy. In either case, law has been diligently at work. His world once invented, the highest law that comes next into play is that there shall be harmony between the laws by which the new world has begun to exist. And in the process of his creation, the inventor must hold by those laws. The moment he forgets one of them, he makes the story by its own postulates incredible. To be able to live in a moment in an imagined world, we must see the laws of its existence obeyed. Those broken, we fall out of it. The imagination in us, whose exercise is essential to the most temporary submission to the imagination of another, immediately with the disappearance of law, ceases to act. Suppose the gracious creatures of some childlike region of fairyland, talking either Cockney or Gascon, would not the tale, ah, Gascon, Gascon, 
I don't know how to pronounce that actually. You know what? I thought I did, but now I'm just confused. Anyways, <laughs> would not the tale, however lovely begun, sink at once to the level of the burlesque, of all forms of literature the least worthy? A man's inventions may be stupid or clever, but if he do not hold by the laws of them, or if he make one law jar with another, he contradicts himself as an inventor. He is no artist. He does not rightly consort his instruments, or he tunes them in different keys. The mind of man is the product of live law. It thinks by law. It dwells in the midst of law. It gathers from law its growth. With law, therefore, can it alone work to any result. Inharmonious, unconsorting ideas will come to a man, but if he try to use one of such, his work will grow dull, and he will drop it from mere lack of interest. Law is the soil in which alone beauty will grow. Beauty is the only stuff in which truth can be clothed. And you may, if you will, call imagination the tailor that cuts her garments to fit her, and fancy his journeyman that puts the pieces of them together, or perhaps at most embroiders their buttonholes. Obeying law, the maker works like his creator. Not obeying law, he is such a fool as heaps a pile of stones and calls it a church. So MacDonald is here sort of responding to this notion of really, people might say that if you're going to write or create a fairy tale, that you're somehow doing it as just to escape the laws of the world around us, or that it's just total and utter ridiculous nonsense because, you know, in some fairy tales, people might float or frogs turn into humans. Any of these things that does not, they don't happen in the natural world of the senses. But he's arguing that when people write these fairy tales, they're not trying to escape this notion of law and order to go to something completely lawless and unbound. What instead they're doing is they're creating a new little world and they're imbuing it with laws of its own. And they're using the imagination to embody truths that exist here in our world and put them, put those same truths into this new world and just sort of putting it in a different light, if you will. So I, I think it's just fascinating to me. I think it's so important how much he stresses law. You have to have a cohesive world when, when you create a world. I think of like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings even. These are both complex worlds. I mean, Lord of the Rings is even more complex than Harry Potter, but Harry Potter is a pretty complex world. And the author has to create all of the laws of how this works and they have to fit together because the moment we read a story and we realize that something's off, that the various laws of the universe, this created universe don't match up, we're immediately sucked back out of the story. And <laughs> maybe that doesn't always happen for everybody, but this is just gonna be a little mini rant. I, I enjoyed the first Frozen. I thought it was I thought it was good, not as good as Tangled, but you know, I enjoyed it. The second Frozen, I I had it, it was hyped up for me, I was excited, I went to go see it, and I was just so disappointed. I was so disappointed because none of that world made sense. They they just sort of threw all these different pieces together. They're like, oh Elsa's this I can't even remember what she was. I don't know, but there's all these different, there's magic in it, but none of the magic fits together. There seems to be no structure or law or order. They have, you know, they have fancy. They, they've created something new. They've invented something that is exciting and cool. But when all the things just sort of, when they don't fit together in a cohesive way, it pulls you out of the story. And I'm just sitting there going, I'm so confused. None of this makes sense. Like, how did these people, did they even draft out how the magic works in this world? I don't think they did. I think they just sort of ran away with their fancy and didn't tie the bits and pieces together. 
And so that story is never going to be a lasting and great story in the same way that Harry Potter might be because there's just not the integrity of the world. And I think a lot of times if we're only readers and not writers, we don't understand how complex this is. It's really hard to create a cohesive world, <laughs> to build out a history of that world, to build out the laws of that universe and make them all work together. It's, it is work. You know, you don't just like sit down to write a story and it's all fun and games. Even, I mean, I mean this even goes beyond plot, especially as a fairy tale person or a fantasy writer, you, you are creating this whole new world and it takes time and energy to make sure that everything works. And you want to like sort of go from that and expand out to our own universe. Think of how complex our universe is. All the pieces that have to be perfectly right for, for life to survive, for this and that, and all of these different things to exist. So this has to come from a very complex imaginative source right, who, can, who wrote, spoke all of these laws into existence and keeps them working all the time together harmoniously. Anyways, that's sort of a, a sort of a side a sidetrack. But he it's interesting that he makes this distinction of products of the imagination, which are new embodiments of old truths in this little world that the inventor has created, versus fancy, which are just sheer inventions. They're not necessarily embodiments of old truth. They're just something totally separate. And different but either way he says it is law that is diligently at work because the inventor has to write laws into this world even if they are laws that are different than the law of senses that we have here so once he creates the world again like we've just sort of been talking about the highest laws that all of these laws have to work together and the inventor has to hold by those laws he can't just start creating new things all the time. Once he's set a long place, he has to follow it. He's bound by something. He can't just constantly be breaking laws or else all of us would be thrown out of the story immediately and it would become dull and it would fail. He must be held by law. The creator of Fairyland in some ways is almost feels more bound by the laws that he's created than maybe someone who's working within, writing a story sort of within the natural world. And he talks again, you know, the inventions may be stupid, they may be clever, but again, if they don't hold by the laws, then this person, they're contradicting themselves and they're no artist. An artist can't contradict himself. Um, so really what McDonald is emphasizing here is the importance of law in this work. It is not a lawless work. There's a work full and rich of law and everything that man lives by law, right? He says law too is the soil in which alone beauty will grow. Beauty is the only stuff in which truth can be clothed. And so he's tying together imagination, even fancy, with the clothing of truth um, and with beauty and all of these different pieces. That's like sort of what the fairy tale is doing. It's taking truth and with the imagination, it's clothing this truth and, and beauty, uh, which is just oh, wonderful. So that's sort of a brief, perhaps all over the place discussion of those few paragraphs. Then he talks about the moral world. So he says in the moral world, it is different. There a man may clothe in new forms and for this employ his imagination freely, but he must invent nothing. So he can sort of use the imagination to clothe a new form's truth, but he can't invent something totally different, right? He can't all of a sudden, like in the natural world, right? You can invent something new by inventing grass that is suddenly purple, right? But he can't do, that doesn't work in the same way when you're talking about the moral law. That has to be obeyed. He continues by saying, 
He might not, for any purpose, turn its laws upside down. He must not meddle with the relations of live souls. The laws of the spirit of man must hold, alike in this world and in any world he may invent. It were no offense to suppose a world in which everything repelled instead of attracted the things around it. It would be wicked to write a tale representing a man it called good as always doing bad things, or a man it called bad as always doing good things. The notion itself is absolutely lawless. And physical things a man may invent, and moral things he must obey, and take their laws with him into his invented world as well. So he makes a difference between the physical world and the moral world, right? In the physical world, you can invent new things when, when you're dealing with physical stuff. But in the moral things, you don't invent something new. You don't invent a new moral code. You just obey the moral law that exists. And he brings, right, so by doing this, he's bringing a moral dimension into literature, right? Literature must, it always has a moral dimension. It's either good or wicked. It, you know, it's, it's one or the other, depending on whether or not it obeys the moral laws. By doing this, he, he's assuming, or maybe assuming, inferring, no, He's working out of this concept, right, of understanding that moral law is transcendent. It goes above. It is higher than. It transcends physical space, right? It transcends all of these things. It is, it is completely above. And that's why it holds weight, not just in the physical world, but in any world that we as humans create as well. And if we are to neglect the moral law, then we become lawless. Whereas if we do change things with a physical law within a story world, we're not being lawless. We're just being inventive. But if, but if we change the moral law, then we're being completely lawless, he says. So, so he's sort of going through here, right? He has this whole discussion of law, of creating these laws of Fireland. And he very clearly says there is a place where you can take invention too far. And taking invention too far is calling evil good and good evil, basically. So from here, he's kind of set that up. He set up really the importance of fairy tales by saying that they are law-abiding, right? That they can clothe, they can embody old truths, give new embodiment, basically, to old truths. Then he poses a question. He says, you write as if a fairy tale were a thing of importance. Must it have a meaning? Because that's what we're all after. What is the meaning of this story? What is the meaning of that story? So he answers, it cannot help having some meaning. If it have proportion and harmony, it has vitality, and vitality is truth. The beauty may be plainer in it than the truth, but without the truth, the beauty could not be, and the fairy tale would give no delight. Everyone, however, who feels the story will read its meaning after his own nature and development. One man will read one meaning in it, another will read another. So I think it's interesting here, where he's talking about truth and beauty. And in truth and beauty, they have to come together. It's very obvious when you read a fairy tale that it is beautiful. So you're saying that the truth may not be quite so easy to grasp, but because it is beautiful, you know that it is true. Because the true and the beautiful, they come together, which if you really want to get into an in-depth discussion of beauty, that's a very interesting, you know, strong proposition to make. That something is beautiful because it is true. Um, are all beautiful things necessarily true, etc., etc.? I don't know. Interesting discussion. But the fairy tale gives delight because it is beautiful because it is true. However, he says, everyone will read sort of their own meaning into it or, or pull their own meaning out of it. So that's what he's going to dig into more because I think we all immediately, there's a big debate surrounding that and, and he really gets into it and really unpacks what he means by that. So he continues, 
by posing the follow-up question. If so, how am I to assure myself that I'm not reading my own meaning into it, but yours out of it? And he answers, why should you be so assured? It may be better that you should read your meaning into it. That may be a higher operation of your intellect than the mere reading of mine out of it. Your meaning may be superior to mine. Which I feel like is such a George MacDonald answer, you know? And he's like, look, maybe your meaning is superior to the author's. Maybe you are smarter than the author or wiser than the author. So then he, he continues and asks another question. Suppose my child asks me what the fairy tale means. Then what am I to say? He answers, if you do not know what it means, what is easier than to say so? If you do see a meaning in it, there it is for you to give him. A genuine work of art must mean many things. The truer its art, the more things it will mean. So, so I think to some degree, he's in a sense separating meaning and truth. Not saying they're completely separate, but there's a higher truth. There's a core truth to it. But we can sort of all come at the truth maybe from pulling out different pieces of the truth. And those might be the meanings, if you will. So he says, if my drawing, on the other hand, is so far from being a work of art that it needs this is a horse written under it, what can it matter that neither you nor your child should know what it means? I mean, like, does it really matter if you look at this amorphous object and then you see this is a horse written under it? Does it matter that you can't see the meaning in the object itself? He says, it is there not so much to convey a meaning as to wake a meaning. That's the goal of the drawing. That's the goal of the art, is not to convey a meaning, which if you write, this is a horse under it, that's what you're doing. You are conveying a meaning. But instead, what art does, what the imagination does, is wake a meaning that is inside of you. It's very different, completely different process. He says, if it do not even wake an interest, then you throw it aside. A meaning may be there, but it is not for you. This is a very personal thing when you are encountering this fairy tale. So he continues, if again you do not know a horse when you see it, the name written under it will not serve you much. At all events, the business of the painter is not to teach zoology. So, so if you think of this, if again you do not know a horse when you see it, the name written under it will not serve you much. If you read a story and you can't grasp the truth from reading it, somebody just spelling it out for you is not going to make much of a difference for you because the part, the form of the truth matters and the form that the truth is being presented or even the form that the, the truth exists is in the form of the fairy tale and the fairy tale is meant to waken up meaning within you not to just convey a meaning it's this intensely deep relational in a sense way of um, understanding and knowing so if it's not waking anything and it's just then, then you're not ultimately going to grasp what, what is in there. Um, I definitely don't think I made much sense in those last <laughs> few moments, but hey, maybe I got some meaning across, maybe not. So he continues and says, but indeed your children are not likely to trouble you about the meaning. They find what they are capable of finding, and more would be too much. For my part, I do not write for children, but for the childlike, whether five or fifty or seventy-five. This is quoted a lot. <laughs> but I, I think he makes... He makes a good point, you know. Children and the child, like, read stories. And they, they just, they read stories. And what meaning is woken within them is the meaning that is that is woken within them. You know, that, that's sort of the extent. They're not trying to overanalyze what they're reading and trying to pull it apart and dissect it to the point that it, it becomes, in a sense, meaningless. 
so he, he furthermore says a fairy tale is not an allegory right so an allegory is a story where one thing is a perfect stand-in for another thing in the sense of like uh, pilgrim's progress is the most famous allegory and so you have the main character his name is christian and he is the image of the average christian the everyman right and there's um I'm trying to think there's mr worldly wise there's hopeful there's faithful and these are characters but they stand in for hope for faith etc etc um so a fairy tale is not that it is not a one for one this means that this means that and so on and so forth there may be allegory in it he says but it is not an allegory he must be an artist indeed who can in any mode produce a strict allegory that is not a weariness to the spirit an allegory must be mastery or mortgage and I think he's right. Usually allegories are boring. Pilgrim's Progress is kind of the standout exemption to the usual allegory and how successful it is and how meaningful it is. But in general, I, I agree that allegories can be rather dull, especially in comparison to fairy tales. So he says, a fairy tale, like a butterfly or a bee, helps itself on all sides, sips at every wholesome flower, and spoils not one. The true fairy tale is, to my mind, very like the sonata. We all know that a sonata means something, and where there is the faculty of talking with suitable vagueness and choosing metaphors sufficiently loose, mind may approach mind in the interpretation of a sonata, with the result of a more or less contenting consciousness of sympathy. Right, so, so if we sort of stay vague enough, we, we choose our metaphors loosely enough to describe what the sonata means to us, we may all sort of kind of agree and be like, yeah, yeah, like, I, I see what you're saying, like, it, it all sounds relatively similar, what we're saying the sonata means to us. But, he says, if two or three men sat down to write out each what the sonata meant to him, what approximation to definite idea would be the result? Little enough, and that little more than needful. We should find it had roused related, if not identical feelings, but probably not one common thought, right? So there is a there's some sort of higher truth in this sonata. And so the meaning comes to all of us in these sort of related feelings, but we each would have our own specific thought of the meaning we pulled from it it's not going to be exactly the same for every person so that he says as the sonata therefore failed had it undertaken to convey or ought it to be expected to impart anything defined anything notionally recognizable so we we don't think that a sonata exists to convey a very specific one meaning only right to, to do so would be just to seem like we're butchering music and that's his argument is that a fairy tale is like a sonata it's so rich and full of truth and we're all going to take away a sort of probably relatively similar feeling but the, how what the meaning exactly is going to convey to each one of us is going to be distinct but that doesn't mean that the fairy tale fails just because it's not a one-for-one -one allegory with one specific intended conveyed meaning so then he poses the question but words are not music Words, at least, are meant and fitted to carry a precise meaning, which is interesting. He's going to get in here to, um, to dispute this, but just a bit of history. If you read um, Faith, Hope, and Poetry by Malcolm Guy, I'm pretty sure it was in that book and the introduction that he talks about this, sort of talking about what happened to words with the shift to the Enlightenment. And it's really at the shift to Enlightenment that we try to say, yes, words can only have can only be concrete, only have this one specific meaning that we try to pull out all of the sort of abstract notion of words, all of the imagery of words, all the symbolism of words, and just sort of suck the life out of words, right? Because uh, Guy is arguing that book to bring poetry back 
um, into a theological understanding that we need imagination to have a rich theology. And so one of the things that the alignment did is kind of give us this notion that words must only carry a precise meaning and nothing else. So then MacDonald sort of offers, he offers his response here. He says, it is very seldom indeed that they carry the exact meaning of any user of them. And if they can be so used as to convey definite meaning, it does not follow that they ought never to carry anything else. Words are live things that may be variously employed to various ends. They can convey a scientific fact or throw a shadow of her child's dream on the heart of a mother. They are things to put together like the pieces of a dissected map or to arrange like the notes on a stave. Is the music in them to go for nothing? It can hardly help the definiteness of a meaning. Is it therefore to be disregarded? They have length and breadth and outline. Have they nothing to do with depth? Have they only to describe, never to impress? Has nothing any claim to their use but the definite? The cause of a child's tears may be altogether undefinable. Has the mother therefore no antidote for his vague misery? That may be strong in color which has no evident outline. A fairy tale, a sonata, a gathering storm, a limitless night seizes you and sweeps you away. Do you begin at once to wrestle with it and ask whence its power over you, whither it is carrying you? The law of each is in the mind of its composer. That law makes one man feel this way, another man feel that way. Right, so he's saying that there is a law in the fairy tale world, right? We already established that there is a law going on there, but that law affects different people differently. To one, the sonata, he says, is a world of odor and beauty. To another, of soothing only and sweetness. To one, the cloudy rendezvous is a wild dance with a terror at its heart. To another, a majestic march of heavenly hosts with truth in their center pointing their course but as yet restraining her voice. The greatest forces lie in the region of the uncomprehended. Right, so he's saying that words, they pack a deep power within them. I mean, we know this. Uh, think of even, oh, I'm trying to think of something specific, but the word lion. If we say the word lion, there are many things that are packed behind that word, right? If, if you're a Christian, there's all the symbolism of Jesus as the lion of Judah. If you've actually encountered a lion in the wild, there's going to be a level of symbolism versus if you've only seen a lion in a zoo or if you've never seen a lion at all, right? Words they carry, they're embedded within a culture, and so they carry much more behind them than just a definite meaning, right? So he's saying you could write a cloudy, or maybe not even write, you could see a cloudy rendezvous, right? You look up into the sky and you see all of these clouds, or maybe you write something of like this cloudy rendezvous, and different people are going to feel it differently. I'm trying to think of the right the right words to saying this, right? One sees a wild dance with terror at its heart, but the other sees a majestic march of heavenly hosts with truth in their center, pointing their course, but is yet restraining her voice. There's a region going on here that he says of the uncomprehended. That's because all of these things, the fairy tale, the sonata, the gathering storm, the limitless night, all of these things, they're not there to convey a meaning. They're there to awake something deeper within you, right? They have this great seizing power carrying you away. They're lawful, they're not lawless, but they're going to affect each one of us differently. So he continues on, he says, I will go further. The best thing you can do for your fellow next to rousing his conscience is not to give him things to think about, but to wake things up that are in him. 
or say to make him think things for himself. That is what the fairy tale does. The fairy tale wakes up something that is within you. It doesn't convey an outside meaning, it wakes up something within you. The best nature does for us is to work in us such moods in which thoughts of high import arise. Does any aspect of nature wake but one thought? Does she ever suggest only one definite thing? Does she make any two men in the same place at the same moment think the same thing? I mean, just think if you're standing next to a friend witnessing a rainstorm, are you feeling the same thing or is nature waking up something different within each of you? Is she therefore failure, he says, because she is not definite? Because she can't be limited to just one thing? I mean, can you imagine if like rainstorms could only mean one thing, could only make us feel one way? How, how, how dull of a world that would be. Uh, just trying to imagine it is terrifying. He says, is it nothing that she arouses the something deeper than the understanding, the power that underlies thoughts? Does she not set feeling and so thinking at work? Would it be better that she did this after one fashion and not after many fashions? Nature is mood engendering, thought provoking. Such ought the sonata, such ought the fairy tale to be. Right? The fairy tale is to provoke thought through its lawful world, not to convey a specific thought. Otherwise, you would just say it. <laughs> Why at all use a fairy tale? So then he says, but a man may then imagine in your work what he pleases, what you never meant. To what, to this MacDonald answers, not what he pleases, but what he can. If he be not a true man, he will draw evil out of the best. We need not mind how he treats any work of art. But if he be a true man, he will imagine true things. What matter whether I meant them or not? Isn't that amazing? He's like, the true man will see true things. Doesn't matter if I meant them or didn't mean them. They're there and the true man will see them. He says, they are not there nonetheless that I cannot claim putting them there. One difference between God's work and man's is that while God's work cannot mean more than he meant, man's must mean more than he meant. Anything that we as humans do, any story that we write must mean more than we originally intended. Somehow, the stories that we tell transcend us. He says, for in everything that God has made, there is layer upon layer of ascending significance. Also, he expresses the same thought and higher and higher kinds of that thought. It is God's things, his own embodied thoughts, which alone a man has to use, modified and adapted to his own purposes for the expression of his thoughts. Think about that, like a chair, a tree, that is God's embodied thought. We alone, we only have God's embodied thoughts to use. So clearly, right, these are constantly looking back to higher and higher and higher thoughts of God's that supersede and transcend our own. So he continues saying, therefore, he... The man cannot help his words and figures falling into such combinations in the mind of another as he had himself not foreseen. So many other thoughts allied to every other thought. So many other relations involved in every figure. So many the facts hinted in every symbol. Right? A tree and a story can mean so many things that we may never have intended to mean because there's, there's so much symbol going on there. There's so many different things hinted at, tied to it by this higher transcendent notion of of thoughts of what everything means of words all of these different things i mean this gets really complex um and honestly you could spend ages just talking about this not trying to sort of fit everything into one episode so he says a man may well himself discover truth in what he wrote for he was dealing all the time with things that come came from thoughts beyond his own right i mean as a writer myself i know that i often discover truth in my work truth that i didn't intentionally put there 
That's again because I'm working with things that are bigger than myself. I'm working with symbols that hold a collective place in all of humanity, right? That's tied to all of these different human experiences throughout centuries. But also I'm working with the stuff that comes from God's thoughts. And so of course it's, it's going to transcend me and be higher than me and be connected to so many different things, to connected to a truth higher than what I expected. But surely, someone asks, you would explain your idea to one who asked you. McDonald says, I say again, if I cannot draw a horse, I will not write this as a horse under what I foolishly meant for one. Any key to a work of imagination would be nearly, if not quite, as absurd. The tale is there not to hide but to show. If it show nothing at your window, do not open your door to it. Leave it out in the cold. To ask me to explain is to say, roses, boil them or we won't have them. My tales may not be roses, but I will not boil them. Right, a key to a work of imagination, he's like, is pointless. If I have to give it to you, then it's already sort of failed in that sense. Because it's not even there to just convey one meaning. But what it is, the truth that should, the truth that's embedded in it should be plain to see, in a sense. It's not hidden. So long as I think my dog can bark, he says, I will not sit up to bark for him. If a writer's aim be logical conviction, he must spare no logical pains, not merely to be understood, but to escape being misunderstood. This is sort of what we've been thinking on and talking about, right, this whole time. Like, if that's your goal, then don't even draw a horse. Just write. You know, just explain it. Don't write a story. Just use logical argument if your goal is to be logical conviction, to persuade something of one specific thing. His object, he says, is to move by suggestion, to cause to imagine. Then let him assail the soul of his reader as the wind assails an aeolian harp. If there be music in my reader, I would gladly wake it again. Writing a story, composing a song, these things are meant to wake and stir the imagination. It is a much deeper thing than just to persuade someone through logical argument. He says, let the fairy tale of mine go for a firefly that now flashes and now is dark, but may flash again. Caught in a hand which does not love its kind, it will turn to an insignificant, ugly thing that can neither flash nor fly, right? Only someone who loves the fairy tale can see the truth there. If, 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 the, if the fairy tale is in the hands of the wrong sort of reader, they will see it as insignificant. They'll completely miss what's going on. They won't understand it at all and they'll throw it out. Because in one sense, it's not obvious, it's not clear, it doesn't say this is a horse. It's clear in its own unique, different form. Clear in that it wakes something within you, but hidden in the sense that it doesn't convey one specific meaning. It makes me think, too, of, like, the parables that Jesus uses, right, to, to try to pull out a moral um, guideline as if they were some sort of, they were just trying to make a moral point, is to miss the point altogether of what the parables are about. And even Jesus says, right, that only specific people can understand what he's saying, right? People with ears that are closed will never understand the parable. They'll completely miss it because that's just sort of how story works. The best way, MacDonald says, with music, I imagine, is not to bring the forces of our intellect to bear upon it, but to be still and let it work on that part of us for whose sake it exists. Can you, can you imagine, like, sitting in a concert just trying to parse out everything that's going on? As if you were, maybe you were, like, sitting there and you're trying to write down every note as you hear it, and you think you'll understand it that way? If you have been able to somehow write down all the, I mean, it would be impossible for you to, like, sit there and write down all the notes. But he's saying, you don't do that. 
When you listen to a beautiful piece of music, you close your eyes, you soak it in, you experience it. That is how it does its work on you. It is the same way with fairy tales. You read it, you enjoy it, you sit in it, you soak in it, you experience it, and that is how it does its work on you. Not by trying to logically pull it and analyze it to pieces. He continues by saying we spoil countless precious things by intellectual greed. Because we just want to hold on to some definite, clear meaning, and we want to grasp it with our mind fully, easily, every moment. We have this greed for an intellectual grasping. It's possible to have a greed for that, right? It's not always that it can go too far, and that's when it becomes greed. McDonald says, he who will be a man, who insists on like, I'm, I'm going to understand this, I'm going to know this, blah, 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 and will not be a child, must, he cannot help himself become a little man, that is, a dwarf. He will, however, need no consolation, for he is sure to think himself a very large creature indeed. Right? Isn't that the irony? When you have intellectual greed and you think you can just sort of easily parse things, pull them apart, analyze them apart, and say, aha, I see all these parts, I understand this, I know this, I know how it works. You think much of yourself, but you're really a dwarf. Whereas if you would give up all of that and just be a child and humbly come and read the fairy tale for what it is, understand it for its own form, and let it do its work on you, then you'll become a true man. He ends by saying, if any strain of my broken music make a child's eyes flash or his mother's grow for a moment dim, my labor will not have been in vain. That is his labor. To stir something. To wake something. That is the goal of the artist. Not to convey a logical argument, but to wake up the truth that is deep inside every one of us. So that is McDonald's essay, The Fantastic Imagination. Hopefully in not too convoluted of a way, I'm still trying to figure out exactly how many notes I need to write out ahead of time so that I don't sound too rambly, and I probably sounded a bit too rambly this time, so hopefully uh, next time I'll try to have a few more notes so that I have coherent thoughts. But a lot of times, as I sort of talk through things, is when I get new ideas, and that's why it helps to have someone else to be in conversation with, because then we sort of help spark new ideas in each other and hopefully keep each other from going too deeply into rabbit trails that make no sense. But at any rate, um, yeah, that's George MacDonald, and I hope you enjoyed that, and I will be back in two weeks with the first five chapters of Heretics by G.K. Chesterton, and um, I should hopefully have a companion discussing that, who I'm just going to refer to from here on out as the Sage. So that's her name. It's gonna be exciting.